Let's do it. And now, shining the spotlight on the future of hockey. Hello, it's Thorne Byron of the Vancouver Giants. I'm Kirby Dock of the Saskatoon Blades. I'm Dylan Cousins of the Westbridge Hurricanes. Hey guys, this is Cam here. Spencer Knight. This is Matt Boldy. It's Alex Turcott from Team USA. Hi, it's Maurice Sider from the Adelman. This is Alex Lafreniere of the Rimouski Oceanic. Major Junior. They were the best in the QMJHL. And now the Huskies are Memorial Cup champions. NCAA. Everybody in that Bulldog section's on their feet. The bench is ready to party as the UMD Bulldogs are back-to-back national champions. The World Juniors. Time winding down, and Finland has won the World Junior Championship in Vancouver in spectacular style. The NHL Draft. With the first pick overall, the New Jersey Devils are proud to select from the U.S. program, Jack Hughes. And more. Unbelievable. Wow. Incredible. This is the Pipeline Show. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pipeline Show. My name is Guy Flaming. Thanks again. If you are a uh, returning listener to the show, have been for a while, I appreciate uh, you coming back for more. And if you're a newcomer to the show, then welcome aboard, and I hope you enjoy and come back for more. Thanks, uh, Special thanks to all, everyone who has signed up to be a patron at patreon.com slash the pipeline. Show your contributions. Keep the show going. So I'm appreciative that uh, you like the show enough uh, to contribute a couple of bucks a month, and hopefully you're enjoying the benefits like early access, where you can hear all these interviews that you're going to hear on the full show today. Uh, they've been available for patrons uh, for about three days now. Uh, for the most part. As always, we start with the uh, question of the day. I haven't actually put it up on Twitter, but uh, I'm thinking about the the NHL draft, and there's this talk about uh, having it early and maybe having it at the regular scheduled time in in late June. Or what if you have to postpone it and uh, push it back until after, if and when, the NHL is uh, able to complete their season in playoffs uh, so that you can have a properly determined uh, draft order. So if I put up the question of the day, that's probably what it's going to be, is what would you prefer as a uh, a fan of uh, the NHL or prospects in general? When do you want to see the NHL draft? You can let me know on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. Tell you who's coming down the pipe as the guest list uh, a little bit later in this uh, opening segment. But uh, a couple of news and notes, things I wanted to pass on. Not a whole lot of uh, player signings here since the uh, last week's episode. Uh, Miko Leitnan has been signed by Toronto. San Jose Signed a couple of uh, European players, Frederick Handemark uh, from the Malmo Redhawks in Sweden and uh, goaltender Alexei Melnichuk uh, out of Russia. The Florida Panthers signed Grigory Denisenko, Tampa, that comes to terms with Dmitry Samikin. And uh, the Montreal Canadiens have signed defenseman Alexander Romanov, who uh, is a pretty talented player. We've seen him recently uh, at some uh, junior events, some high-profile ones, and he's been one of their main guys. Uh, and, of course, by now everybody's heard Brennan Leipzig's contract terminated by the Washington Capitals for some uh, fairly reprehensible comments that he made, albeit in a private conversation, that uh, found its way into the public eye. Edmonton Oil Kings head coach Brad Lauer named the uh, WHL's Coach of the Year. And Peter Anholt, the GM of the Lethbridge Hurricanes, named the Executive of the Year in the WHL. CJHL Player of the Year. This is Devin Levy, the goaltender with the Carlton Place Canadians, obviously also named the uh, top goaltender 
for the CJHL this year. The uh, top defenseman goes to Michael Benning of the uh, Sherwood Park Crusaders. And uh, no surprise, Kent Johnson of the Trail Smoke Eaters is the uh, top forward in the Canadian Junior Hockey League. All of those guys headed to Division One. Levy is uh, going to uh, Northeastern. Michael Benning has signed his national letter of intent uh, to play for Denver. And the Michigan Wolverines uh, have recruited uh, Kent Johnson. The Kingston Frontenacs have announced that uh, former head coach Paul McFarland is returning to the bench of the uh, Frontenacs. He was uh, behind their bench a couple of years ago. In fact, it was the best season in uh, Kingston's uh, franchise history. That was back in 2015-16. He's been with the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, but leaves the NHL to go back to Kingston, where he'll be the head coach once again of the uh, the Fronts. So that's big news out of the OHL. And in the queue, they had their uh, draft lottery, and um, Gatineau Olympique will uh, have a very busy day early on in the draft. They pick first, second, and fourth overall in the uh, queue draft, which happens this coming June. And that's about it for uh, news and notes at the moment. Uh, I can tell you, all my guests will join me via the Troubled Monk hotline. And uh, big news with Troubled Monk here. This uh, Since last week, they've got the Tall Boys available. Tall cans of Daycation. Of course, the Juicy Gossip New England IPA. That's a winner. And uh, new t- Tall Cans for the Open Road American Brown Ale as well. Uh, and just scrolling down uh, the website, uh, you can now get what they call a Ninja Surprise Pack. It's a six-pack. It's got a couple of Epitaph uh, Gin and Soda as well as a trouble tea and a couple of Bucktooth Belgian White cans included in that six-pack. They've got adequate vodka, which I tried not that long ago and uh, was wonderful. They've got two kinds of uh, gin, the Epitaph Berry Blossom Gin and the Epitaph Blue Gin, and a selection of uh, soda as well. Uh, So go to troubledmonk.com, and uh, don't forget that if you uh, place your order by 1 o'clock, you can get same-day free delivery in Calgary, Red Deer, and Edmonton, including Sherwood Park and St. Albert. That's troubledmonk.com. My guests today, we have uh, three guests uh, for you. We're going to start the show off with uh, Adam Woden from College Hockey News. Uh, they've been all over the announcement uh, from uh, Long Island University about joining Division One, And to suggest that they are going to be ready for this fall, well, have they put the cart way before the horse? Uh, possibly. We'll talk to Adam about that and about the potential that uh, is college hockey even going to be playing this coming fall. We'll see. We'll get Adam's thoughts on that. Uh, then we'll have a 2020 draft spotlight defenseman uh, playing uh, high school hockey in Minnesota this year. Nate Schweitzer is his name. He's ranked just outside the top 100 by NHL Central Scouting in North America, but uh, had a strong season with uh, his high school program. He's going to be playing in the USHL next year and off to Colorado College the a year after that. We'll get to know him on today's show. And at TSN 1260 in Edmonton this week and next week, rebroadcasting the 2014 Western Hockey League final, that series between the Oil Kings and the Portland Winterhawks, and also the uh, semifinal and final from the Memorial Cup that year in London, Ontario. Uh, spoiler alert, the Oil Kings uh, are WHL and uh, Memorial Cup champions, so you know how it all ends. But those games have been a lot of fun to listen to. Again, they've uh, they started it on Monday. Uh, today it's Friday, so tonight it will be Game 5 of that series between Edmonton and uh, Portland. It's been a lot of fun to listen to. I, I didn't get the chance to listen to them 
because uh, well, all the ones in Portland and Game 6 and the Memorial Cup, I was in the broadcast booth. I'm on the broadcast doing color for Corey Graham. And the Games 3 and 4 of the WHL Final in Edmonton, well, I was at the games. I wasn't broadcasting them. That was Kent Simpson. But uh, I was up in the booth right next to the uh, radio broadcast position, so I wasn't able to hear the broadcast. So it's been a lot of fun to, to go back and listen to. The crowds are great especially in Portland where our broadcast position is right immersed in, you know, surrounded by fans. What a great atmosphere. And those games were unbelievably entertaining. And you can hear them 6 p.m. Uh, all week, well, this week and next week on TSN 1260. So you can, uh, if you're out of the market, uh, you can listen to them online. Uh, but I did track down Corey Graham to uh, talk about that and uh, his thoughts and memories of that time as we go back and uh, listen to those games again. So uh, today we'll start with Adam Odom from College Hockey News talking about LIU and uh, is it going to be college hockey next year or not? We'll find out when we come back. You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Matias Samuels to left point. Gruden around on the right side. one nothing U18. Stasky walks the line, took the shot right on goal. They score! Farabee put in the rebound, and Farabee gives his grandmother a birthday present. It's 2-0. Hey, it's Joe Farabee from Team USA, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. He is a midnight mover. He can go on in the sunlight. Passion. Talent. Development. NCAA hockey offers all that and its players graduate at a 90% rate. NHLers Kyle Turris. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal! And Duncan Keith. And future NHLers Tyson Jost and Dante Fabro all took the campus route. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. I'm a mog, half man, half dog. I'm my own best friend. Back on the Pipeline Show, we'll begin this week's episode with a NCAA campus report. Uh, those, of course, brought to you by College Hockey Inc. If you are a player or have one in your family and you need to know what you can and can't do uh, to maintain your NCAA eligibility, uh, College Hockey Inc. is a great resource for that. You can get in touch with them. That would be uh, Mike Snee or Nate Ewell, and they can steer you in the right direction and answer any of the questions that you might have. Uh, big news in college hockey recently is, uh, hey, there's going to be a 61st team. Well, maybe. Let's uh, bring in Mr. Gloom and Doom from uh, College Hockey News. That would be Adam Woden, and I call you that because you wrote it yourself uh, this week. Uh, yeah. This big news, uh, but an interesting story. Uh, Long Island University, the Sharks. Uh, looking to become the 61st team in uh, Division One hockey, but wow, they've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I, I always say that realists like myself always look like pessimists when you're overly optimistic person. So yeah, <laughs> I, I like to consider myself realistic, not gloom and doom. But I, you know, I got to cut these things off at the pass. But yeah, uh, you know, it's only big news if it actually all happens. I mean, right. it sounds great on the surface. Long Island University is a 17,000 uh, enrollment campus, so it's pretty, you know, pretty decent size as far as a college hockey school is concerned. But you know, if you go 
about it the wrong way, it really isn't going to be as good as it sounds. So, you know, it, may, it makes a headline at first, but I don't know if they really understood what they were getting themselves into. And so, therefore, on May 5th, uh, already, you have no coach, no players, no rink, no conference, no equipment, and uh, you're you're playing to play in the fall, which doesn't make any sense. So, I don't know. The way they went about announcing that, I mean, great that they want to do it. I think that's fantastic. I think there should be more Division One teams. but. What we've seen from Penn State and Arizona State is usually there's a couple of years at least uh, where the news comes out, and then you know it takes time to put all this stuff together. Why are they going about it like this? You you had a chance to speak with somebody from the university. Yeah, I, I, I'll I'll get to that in a second. But I, I was going to say even Arizona State was considered rushed by a lot of people, mm-hmm. and they you know don't have an arena still as of yet. I mean I, they were close to breaking ground when the whole shut down and everything happened. So hopefully that will happen. And they've done fairly well, you know, with, without that, uh, they would have made their second straight NCAA tournament. They have a coach who's held over from their club program. Who People are skeptical about at first, but has done a great job and great powers. And, you know, they have a humongous university, with a lot of money behind them for travel and all that stuff. And, you know, and they, like I said, they still, uh, some people thought, thought that it was rushed, but, uh, but the, the difference, another difference with Penn State and Arizona State is that they had existing club hockey programs to play off of. And so they had players already. Right. And obviously they built from there. But LIU has none of that. And so, you know, when, when I think, uh, to answer your question as far as uh, what were, were they thinking exactly, is that I don't really, I, I feel like, my article, as my article stated, the guy, the athletic director there, seemed like a really great guy. But very naive in terms of how this worked, you know. Um, try comparing, basically, you know, they have a they've, they've added like six sports in the last few years, and that's like women's gymnastics, water polo, you know. So to them, this was just another ad, you know. It was like, hey, no big deal. We're just adding another. No, it, trying to make that work in Division One hockey. I mean, you're talking about a totally different animal. I mean, it's not quite football and basketball, but it's somewhere in between that's close, you know, and you're dealing with an entire ecosystem of hockey where you've got, you know, an NHL, major junior, a draft, you know, all those things are part of the hockey ecosystem that you don't have to deal with in any of those other sports. Uh, the athletic director, his name is Bill, is it Martinov or Martinov? I'm not sure how it's pronounced. but Martinov, yeah. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of things that jump out from the article that you wrote, uh, which is at College Hockey News, for those who are uh, looking to find it. But, uh, I mean, the first, the opening paragraph basically talks about how College Hockey Inc. had no idea that this was coming, and that's the marketing arm for uh, for the NCAAs for, for hockey, you would think they would be quite involved in a new program uh, uh, coming to the forefront. So, uh, I mean, right away, that it almost sounds like it, that's a bit of a red flag. You yeah. know, it, it almost reminds me of, you know, I'm in Edmonton, the days when the uh, looked like the Oilers were going to be sold to, you know, some shyster, I think, was from Long Island, actually, at one point, and moving it to, to Houston, and then it all went away, and uh, this just doesn't seem like it's on the level. Well, as I alluded to in the piece, the procedurally speaking, it's not that big a deal that they didn't let college hockey. No, I mean, it's not going, there's not, you know, I've had people push back. I mean, say what, 
could they have really done anyway? And, and really not much necessarily. But I think the bigger issue is that it indicates their naivete mm. in, of, of the college hockey world. So it's not that necessarily getting them in would have, you know, helped them. Uh, they certainly couldn't provide financial help or anything like that. But just the idea that they kind of, it wasn't that they, I, I guess the impression I get is that it wasn't consciously a choice, like, oh, we're not going to go through college hockey. It's almost like they, just, they didn't even know it existed. You know, yeah. like, we're going to do this. Oh, oh, there's this other place we could have consulted with. Oh, oh, that's news to us. You know, it, it's the indication of the overall kind of cluelessness of the of the idea that really struck me more so than any uh, effect that it's going to have long lasting. And speaking of finances, you, you your story quotes the budget for coach for the coaching staff for three coaches, a total of one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. And I think before you can even get any players, if I'm a player, the first question I have if you're recruiting me is, well, who's the coach? Um, right. so you've got to get a coach, and you're not even going to pay him even a hundred grand. I mean, you got three coaches. The head coach is going to make more than the assistants, uh, I would have to think. So. Uh, yeah. that, that is a, uh, what I would think to be a pretty small budget for, uh, for coaches. You're going to have, it is a very, very small. It's less than a lot of division three schools. And so it's, you know, it, and so the issue is you're going to have a tough time attracting, uh, coaches, you know, I mean, you may get some guys who just want to be a division one head coach, but what does that mean exactly in terms of being able to, to attract players? Will they have the ability to skills and, and, and will they want to last very long there? Uh, with that kind of salary, so, and then, you know, like, what are you, what are you going to attract for players without any real scholarships at this point either? You know, and it, it's not like they have a beautiful arena to play in. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the facilities that they're talking about playing in, but they're small. I mean, there's nothing special. They're practice rinks with the New York Islanders, and so, what's the attraction? You know, there's there's really zero, and other than just saying, oh, I'm a Division One hockey player, we're basically going to get guys who are, you know, you know, club players or D3 players who say, oh, I want to be on a D1 team, maybe on Long Island. That's it. You know, that that that's not any more of an that You got some of the uh, less established, even Atlantic hockey programs, which is, you know, considered the least, quote unquote, of the six uh, existing conferences that are in better shape. You know, any one of them is in better shape than LIU is in and will be going forward because it's not like, you know, the other thing, as I point out, it's not like there was a plan. You know, it's not like, oh, we're going to do this. Like Arizona State, you know, our plan is to build a new arena. Our plan is to get into a conference. There was no plan. You know, it was just like, hey, let's go out there. We'll start a program, and it'll all just work. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Well, and a 20-game, uh, that's their ambition is to play 20 games in their first year or two. Uh, if I'm a player, do I only want to play 20 games? Yeah, I mean, again, like, so like, you're right. Ideally, you know, there would be an existing club program in place, right, where yeah. you're playing some club games and then some D1 games, and then gradually over the course of a few years, you build a D1 schedule with all D1 players, you know. But uh, so so you almost have to look at the first two years of their existence, assuming that all goes well, uh, as just being like a club program, really. I mean, so... Uh, hopefully, I mean, for their sake, they'll get a coach who's kind of masochistic enough to come in there <laughs> under those circumstances and want to build it and sort of be there, you know, hopefully they find someone who's, you know, smart enough 
to, uh, you know, basically build it from scratch on their own, you know, without, without much support going forward. I mean, they're going to have to be the brains of the whole thing for them. Uh, cause it doesn't, it doesn't sound like the, it's like department really, you know, is providing the supports mm-hmm. from the get go that really is needed. Adam, what about the, the, uh, the area itself, the market in terms of, uh, for recruitment? I mean, to play in your own backyard, would that be attractive enough? Are there enough players there where that would be, uh, uh, a bonus. Maybe they can tap into a market that, well, a lot of guys come from that area, but they have to travel. If there was uh, a solid infrastructure there, it is an attractive spot. You know, it's uh, not only for players who grew up there, which there are a lot more of these days, but for, you know, anyone else, uh, you know, Long Island is, is fine. Danny, it's close to New York City, a couple of uh, two or three NHL teams, depending on how you look at it. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm, I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I haven't lived there in a long time, but when I was growing up there, as I pointed out, the only players that were coming from Long Island were the Ferraro brothers, who, uh, you know, we used to play deck hockey at the facility that their father owned. <laughs> and uh, we used to see their pictures up in the uh, sporting goods store uh, that was affiliated with it. I never met the kids, so they were a little bit younger than me, and they were always out playing ice hockey somewhere in Canada because mm-hmm. there was no competition really and you know some some philadelphia as well no competition or rinks really on long island so we would just hear of them and then you know that would be it but uh over the years it's a lot different uh you know the last 30 years or so we, as, as you know there's a lot of players that come from long island nowadays mike thomas eric uh, adam fox just uh some of the more recent uh, high, high-end guys that have done it so um so so it's a great burgeoning, I mean, it's still growing area for ice hockey, but, uh, you know, that's not going to matter if uh, it's basically a club operation. Well, I mean, we're always looking for new Division One teams uh, to be announced. Your story here mentions uh, Navy, that they were, it was sounds like it was almost imminent that they were about to announce Division One. I'd read elsewhere Illinois was uh, basically at that point as well. I don't know what the segue was for mentioning those two teams, but it seems like there's the interest, at least from other schools. I'd heard about Navy and Illinois and even Syracuse, but not Long Island University. I'd never even heard of Long Island University, uh, to be honest with you. I, I guess if Navy and Illinois come, does maybe Long Island maybe take a page from their book and see how they do it? I mean, they didn't do it with Arizona right. State and Penn State. Right. No, I think, like I said, they're kind of on their own. I mean, LIU is not a bad school. I mean, they, they actually used to be two schools. There was a Division two school on, uh, you know, near the Nassau Coliseum called CW Post, which was a Division two school. And I remember having friends who went to play football there and people went there. But uh, then they merged with LIU, which was based in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, so, so it was basically one, one campus division, one school. And, and I think LIU has had, you know, a basketball team that's gone to the NCAA in a couple of times here and there, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it, it's fine, but, um, but, you know, Navy and Illinois are, are a lot more viable, uh, going forward. I mean, even that they haven't even happened yet, but, uh, I have more confidence that they would do things the right way. Uh, Navy, you know, would be more of an Atlantic hockey school like Army or Air Force, the other, service academies and uh, they'll be fine you know uh illinois obviously would be hoping to be a big time player and uh they they have been going about things the right way as far as uh that's really why it hasn't happened yet because they are trying to go about it the right way in terms of funding and arena and those things have had a hard time coming together for them so they haven't wanted to come you know and do it without having that in place so you know new programs are great 
I just I think that basically the bottom line is here that the athletic director and the administration at LIU was just very naive to the entire environment uh, of college hockey. You know, they just saw it as another sport, like any other sport uh, there. Like I said, gymnastics, water, but no offense to those sports, right. but it's uh, it's an entirely different animal. Even just expenses are entirely different. I mean, hockey equipment, ice time, those are things that other sports do not have to deal with. Now, you also make a mention, or uh, at least you allude to uh, the potential of not even having college hockey in the fall at all, mm. potentially not even the entire season. Uh, where are things at right now uh, in your part of the world where, where you are? Things seem to be kind of starting to open up a little bit in uh, a lot of parts of the world, but uh, I know uh, in the well, in that Long Island area was hit pretty hard by the pandemic. So where do you, where do you see things going right now for college hockey? Yeah, I mean, right currently, uh, you know, based near more so near Princeton, Philadelphia area. So, right. um, but it's similar. I mean, it's not as bad as New York, but uh, you know, we've had it bad enough. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's again, Mister Gloom and Doom here. But uh, <laughs> I feel like, and, and I'm not making fun of people, I guess, who don't see it my way because I understand that it's very hard to wrap your mind around the idea that, and you don't want to, you know, you. You just don't want to admit that it's uh, this is an issue that's going to be around for a long time. But I've got two kids in college, and I feel bad for them that they're just not even at this point probably not going to be able to go back to their campus in the fall. And that's just realistic at this point, you know, just from everything you see, reading the tea leaves, they're not not that hard to read. Um, and so if, if that doesn't happen, then you're not going to have college sports, okay? And then... You know, then you run into all sorts of logistical nightmares as far as, you know, if you start the season second semester in January, will that even be viable? Uh, well, there's still be travel restrictions, still restrictions on fans. You know, what happens if some of the schools in your conference are playing and some aren't? I mean, uh, then what does that do for your schedule? Are you going to have an NCAA tournament with only like 20 eligible teams having played a season, you know, cause it's going to be different all around the country. Yeah. Um, and, and you got to be able to play each other. So it's not just even a matter of, you know, even, even if your campus opens up, you know, will they allow their sports teams to travel? And if so, how far it's just, uh, there's just so many things. I, I, I think the first semester has no shot. That's just me. 1%. You want to put it on? The second semester, January, you know, I don't even know, 25%, 30%. So, I mean, I'm going to hold out maybe some hope. You know, everyone, again, calls me Mr. Gloom and Doom. And I just think that's uh, realistic when you're looking at it. Wow. And who knows what happens with other junior leagues, whether, you know, if the USHL continues to play, maybe some guys would go kind of uh, leave college and, and go play USA just to keep their development going. Heaven forbid the CHL continues to play and NCAA shuts down and uh, what kind of uh, what that would lead yeah. to uh, in terms well, of players uh, moving. And I'm one who thinks that, you know, realistically, you're never going to have zero risk on anything in life. And so it's, uh, you know, at some point you got to move on. But, uh, but I, you know, I also know that uh, a lot of these things are necessary. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, my point, though, is that even if I believe that, you know, my son, for example, I, I think he should go back to school in the fall and uh, live in his off-campus apartment and go to class, and I'm not going to worry that much. I just think that universities as a whole, since there's no real coordinated national effort, they're all kind of on their own, and uh, no one's going to be want to be the one to make the leap. 
uh, even last uh, March when this was starting to happen, I, I remember saying, you know, as soon as things started sort of hitting the fan there, <laughs> I said, I, I said, you know, that the NCAA tournament is not going to be played, is it? Uh, or with fans. And then people were like, again, jumping on me, doom and gloom, but mm-hmm. it turned out to be right because I could see like the, the universities were the ones that were first starting to shut down, you know, and in terms of any business in the United States, those are the first. Uh, because they were concerned about their students, and you saw RPI and Harvard, and one by one, you know, we're not going to send our students to travel anywhere. And so I think they're going to be among the last to come back uh, in terms of allowing their students to travel and so on and so forth. It's different than the NHL, which I think, you know, could play, and hopefully they figure something out. But colleges is just a lot trickier. You can't sequester them on campus uh, in one place and, and, and then be able to play anybody else. Right. So... It's it's very difficult. I, I I don't I just I just don't see it. I don't see the path to it. I know, I know it depresses. It depresses me to say it, but <laughs> just I just I just don't see it happen. Uh, hopefully by January, that's not the case, and we get some semblance of a college hockey season. It'll be nice. But yeah, the same goes for juniors and anybody else. When you're dealing with kids, people are going to be a lot more. Even if so, so theoretically kids are less vulnerable, they're still going to be more you know, touchy about doing it because it's a kid, you know? Yeah. Well, we got a long road ahead of us. That's for sure. We'll see how it all plays out, but we'll have to, we might have to wait a long time for it. Adam, I really, Sorry to depress you. no, that's, I, <laughs> Hey, doom and gloom. I, that's what I expected. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Adam. I appreciate it. Have a, have a good summer if you can and uh, stay safe. Yeah, man. Be good. Adam Wooden from college hockey news. You can read those uh, stories, a couple of them about LIU at collegehockeynews.com, and uh, yeah, does not paint a uh, pretty picture uh, for the future of college hockey this coming season. In fact, since then, I've had uh, a couple of tweets uh, from Mark Edwards, uh, who was uh, just today uh, chiming in on a bit of a thread that I was having with uh, Tyler Yaramchuk and uh, Ryan Rashog. Uh, And to quote uh, Mark Edwards' tweets, he says, For my business, I'm doing my planning based on no junior until November at the earliest, and won't be surprised if it's the new year or worse. I'd guess the NCAA is toast as well. And I replied telling him that uh, I was having Adam on the show this week uh, to talk about that uh, potentially. And he says, I'm personally guessing, this is Mark again, I'm personally guessing they are out for the season, which could be interesting if it becomes reality, especially for teams like Michigan who have high-end incoming classes, including top draft eligible players. And that's kind of what I was alluding to with, uh, with Adam at the end there was, hypothetically, All right, college hockey, no college hockey this coming year, but CHL finds a way to continue playing. How many college players would say, you know, I cannot afford to have a year of not playing. I got to go and would make the jump to play in the CHL. I don't know how many that would be, but I would think that there would be a significant number uh, and that would be really damaging to college hockey. Uh, But at this point, I don't see the CHL playing right now either. I know the uh, governor of Oregon said no uh, no sporting events in front of uh, with spectators uh, through at least to the end of September. That was just announced a, a couple of days ago, and that would mean a team like the Portland Winterhawks, let alone college sports, all you know, Oregon and Oregon State. But the Portland Winterhawks wouldn't be playing in front of fans. I don't know how long CHL teams could play without any gate revenue. There are still some community-owned teams. Uh, Yes, there are teams like the Oil Kings and the Calgary Hitmen who are owned by NHL clubs, so they could probably uh, survive. Uh, 
but uh, Edmonton plays in a league with Prince George, and Lethbridge and, and PA, Prince Albert, are community-owned teams. I don't know how teams like that, could, how long they could survive uh, playing in front of or without fans, not bringing in any gate revenue, and still having the travel expenses that WHL teams have, which are significant. Uh, let alone some of the smaller teams out in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Uh, so some definite hurdles that uh, teams are going to have to clear. All right, coming up next on the Pipeline Show, we'll uh, turn on the 2020 Draft Spotlight. My guest will be a, a player who is headed to the college hockey uh, system. His name is Nate Schweitzer. Get to know him next here on the Pipeline Show. comes Jaden Schwartz, pulls the trigger, pants into the jets, he scores! What a finish! Yeah, this kid's just special. Jaden Schwartz is just a special, special player. Hi, this is Jaden Schwartz from Colorado College. You're listening to the Pipeline Show. From the organization that brought you Mark Messier, Matt Benning, and Ian Mitchell, Spruce Grove Saints Junior A Hockey is officially back for the 2019-2020 season with all the action taking place at the Grant Fear Arena in Spruce Grove. With tickets starting at just $15 per person, AJHL Hockey provides some quality entertainment. For more information, visit www.sprucegrovesaints.ca. You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. I think I'm getting the black lung pop. We're back on the Pipeline Show. Let's continue on with this week's episode with a 2020 draft spotlight segment. And uh, my guest today, coming from a Champlain, Minnesota, just north of Minneapolis, his name is Nate Schweitzer. Uh, welcome to the program, Nate. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, strange days, though, for everybody. I'm sure. What's it like right now in uh, in, in your part of Minnesota? I mean, yeah, it's pretty quiet, uh, but, you know, it just gives you more time with the family, uh, and I've been training a lot, too. A place I've been working out with has been giving us virtual stuff to do, and then got some rollerblades, just riding around on those, and then shooting pucks with my neighbor, so. Uh, well, how was this season uh, for you and for your team? Uh, you know, we, uh, we we're projected to be one of the top teams in state this year, and, uh we had a lot of ups and downs. We actually had a lot of injuries this year, but at the end of the year, we were playing really good hockey, and we we ended in a disappointing way in overtime off of a penalty shot, but it's it's not the way I wanted my high school season or high school career to end, but it's un, it's unfortunate to say the least, And uh, but I was proud of the team we had and the season we had, so I wouldn't trade it. Well, there are some guys out there who wish they could have played their last game because it was canceled because of the whole pandemic situation. What's worse, losing in overtime like that or not even getting to play? Yeah, I guess I guess not getting to play is probably worse, but it's still pretty pretty hard to lose in overtime on a penalty shot. But. Yeah, true. Now, a penalty shot in overtime, pretty rare that that happens. Uh, what what was the play that uh, earned the uh, the penalty shot for the other team? Well, one of our defensemen lost his stick, and a kid got a break when he kind of pulled him down. I mean, uh, it, it probably should have been a penalty shot. It's just hard to see in overtime and trying to go to the state tournament. So it's one of those things that you just 
never seen it before, but it happened and just got to move on. Yeah, that's true. All right. You mentioned high school. I didn't ask you which school you were playing at. Maybe for the audience, it doesn't know. Uh, where have you been the last three seasons? Four seasons, I guess. Uh, yeah, I played for four years at Benilde St. Margaret's, a private school in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Okay. For those outside of Minnesota, to try to get their head wrapped around what high school hockey means in Minnesota, how would you sort of explain it to somebody that's, I don't know, maybe in uh, in California or up here in Canada? I mean, I guess it's just kind of a, a culture. It's just this, uh, this atmosphere in Minnesota where everyone just wants to play high school hockey. Everyone wants to win a state championship. Uh, you see it with guys like Casey Middlestad coming back for their senior year when he could have easily accelerated and gone to Minnesota. And I'm sure anyone that stays back will say that uh, it's the best thing they've ever done and they wouldn't trade it. So it's it's just a culture in Minnesota that it, it brings the hockey community together and everyone loves it. And this was your final year, right? You're done now? Yeah, correct. Okay, well, we'll get to what happens next year uh, in a little bit. Uh, we're speaking with Nate Schweitzer. He's our guest in the 2020 draft spotlight segment. Uh, Nate, uh, for those who might be hearing this and have never uh, heard of you before, but need to before the NHL draft, whenever the draft happens, uh, let's get a, a bit of background. Uh, mentioned you're from Chaplin or you're in Chaplin right now. Is that where you're born and raised? Yep, I've been in Chaplin my whole life. Uh, played youth hockey here, but I decided as uh, going to my freshman year, I wanted a different taste and go to a good private school with a rich history and good team and uh, went to Benilde St. Margaret's. Okay. Have you always been a defenseman? Uh, no, I actually switched in eighth grade. I was a forward my whole life. I played a little D in peewees and mites, but not much. But my coach in eighth grade moved me back there. And I, I still remember, I think it was one of my first shifts. I got the puck at the blue and tried to shoot it and whiffed on it. And the kid went and scored on breakaway. I was like, why am I playing D? But, you know, it. <laughs> Worked out in the end, and I definitely do like be a lot better than forward now. So why did the uh, the coach decide to uh, to make that switch? And and it sounds like you weren't crazy about it at first. So how long before it felt comfortable for you? Uh, I think he decided. I, I've always been a good backward skater, and I always saw the ice well. And I think he just we we were low on D that year, and I think he just wanted to see what it was like. And it probably took me a solid, I'd say half a year to, just to get comfortable back there, but. Mm. I adapted quickly, and uh, now I I think it's the best thing for me. Well, a right-handed defenseman, uh, they're worth uh, their weight in gold, it seems like, these days. You play on the right side, then, I'm assuming? Correct. Yeah. For those who haven't had a chance to watch you play, can you give us a, a bit of a, a self-scouting report? Well, yeah, coming as a background as a forward, I, I still like to get up in the play and be offensive, but I also understand my duties in the D zone, so... I play. I try to play strong in the D zone, good stick, physical in front of the net. But then when I get the chance, get the puck on my stick, get it up to the forwards, and then be that little second wave that mm-hmm. uh, the forwards can rely on. Well, looking at your stats the last few years, uh, interesting. This year, five goals. Last year, 14 goals. Uh, what do you account for the difference there? I played four fewer games this year, but it's not that big of a difference. Yeah, no, it's not that big of a difference. I think this year I, I kind of – try to overpass I guess you could say I I tried to instead of taking shots when I should have I, I tried to move the puck and try to get assists more than shooting and that's something I'm really focusing on this offseason my shot and becoming uh, more powerful more accurate with it so I can get back to that goal scoring touch okay uh, let's talk about uh, the next step for you uh, going to the NCAA and and the the program that is the right fit 
you're in Minnesota, there's so many Division One schools to choose from right in the state. You're going Colorado College. How come? Uh, well, I visited there, and they're, they're the first school to reach out to me, actually. And uh, I visited there, and I just fell in love with it. And uh, the coaches are great. They're getting a brand-new rink, which is going to be awesome. And uh, just just the atmosphere around there, it's all hockey. It's uh, I mean, there's no football or any bigger sport, so it's it's all hockey, and that's that's something I was really looking forward to. And on top of it, as great academics, which plays a played a big factor in me deciding to go there. Any, any idea what academically you're you're going to take? Uh either mathematical economics or just normal economics. Oh wow! Well, I feel uh, dumber already. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. All right. But next year you'll be uh, in the USHL, correct? Sioux Falls. Yeah, I'm gonna play in uh, Sioux Falls next year. Now you'd been, uh, you'd had the chance to play four games with them already um, during this past season. Uh, does that small experience uh, kind of help you prepare for next year and what the uh, step up will be like for you? Yeah, I, I played those four games. I also played four preseason games, so I, in total it's kind of like eight games. So it kind of just gave, gave me a taste and. Uh, I was hoping to get back down there this spring. I was actually planning on going down there, and then two days before I was heading down there, they canceled the season, which is right. a little bit disappointing, but uh, it, it everyone needs to stay safe, so it's fine. But, yep, uh, I think uh, those games will give me give me enough experience to hit the ground running in the fall and play my game. Now let's talk about the uh, the NHL draft, and we don't know when for sure it's going to happen. It's supposed to be the end of June, but – Talk about uh, maybe uh, early June or getting pushed back if the NHL uh, is able to finish and get into their playoffs and do it after that. Uh, so who knows when it's going to happen, but has the draft been on your mind much this year? I mean, I, I try to live by uh, – I don't I don't really care that much about that this year. Like, I just I just tried to, tried to win and become a better player, and I just felt like if I tried to become better and be the best player I can, then things will just fall in line, so – it, it's 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 obviously in the back of your mind, but it's not something I really predicated myself on. I, I more just said I just want to be the best player I can. Whatever happens, happens. Uh, that's interesting because I, when I ask that question to a lot of people or players, that's usually the the answer I get. Some other guys say they look at the rankings all the time and they try to use that as a motivator for themselves. Uh, when the rankings come out for Central Scouting, for example, or any of the other independent ones out there you're not a guy who goes to look to see where you're ranked well obviously you, you can see it's all over the internet and social media so obviously you get an idea and i know, I know where i stand but obviously I, I still use this motivation i can see kids that are listed above me that i think i can outplay and outperform so right. i think there is definitely a motivation factor there Okay, that's what I wanted to hear. Um, when do you uh, actually go to uh, Colorado College? Not this coming season, but the year after, correct? Yeah, correct. Fall 2021. Yeah, okay. Before, between now and then, uh, what areas of your game do you think you still need to work on the most to, to have success, even at the USHL level, uh, if not beyond? Well, yeah, I'm just I'm just looking to get uh, faster and stronger and uh, play harder in my D-zone. I think some of the things I, I don't do well is being physical, like a physical presence in the D-zone. and and I really want to focus on that part of my game because if, if I do that, I feel like I'll be an all-around player and the coach can trust me in any situation. When you say that, are you talking about the body contact or is it just more like angling guys to the boards and things like that? Well, a little bit of both. Just I, I like to use my stick a lot, but and it's it's not a bad thing to use a stick. It's actually pretty good for a D, but 
using a stick to go in to make a hit so they can't make a pass and you separate them and take them out of play. I think that's something I need to work on more and just staying on guys and, and being kind of a little annoying to guys, I guess you could say. Exactly. So it's hard to play against me. Sheet I'm looking at says six foot and 187 pounds, but I am not sure how up to date those are. Where are you at now? Yeah, that's actually right on spot. So during this uh, time off, I mean, you're not getting any ice time in or anything like that right now. So what are you doing to try to stay in hockey shape? Yeah, no, like I said earlier, um, I've been working out five days a week, uh, one day virtual with uh, the place I train with, and then another four days, they just we upload videos of ourselves doing it. So uh, it all works out in the end. And then rollerblading, usually every other day, you know, you don't want to overdo it with all the training, but uh, it, it's something that kind of emulates skating. So right. it's it's good to do and uh shooting pucks to my neighbor who who actually just ended his freshman year at Colorado College. So Oh interesting. Who's kinda that? unique there? Uh Connor Mayer. Nice. All right. So you got a, a teammate living across the street. That's interesting. Yep. It's it's pretty cool. Did he play a role in recruiting you? Uh no, I actually committed before him. I committed in uh September of twenty eighteen and then he committed I think it was it was last year. He he uh he committed, so Interesting. it's kind of unique. People think that like he uh, recruited me and stuff, but they don't know that I actually committed before him. So it's, it's kind of cool. So you recruited him? I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nate, listen, I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed the conversation. I wish you the best of luck next year in uh, in Sioux Falls, and uh, beyond that, at Colorado College, maybe we'll get a chance to uh, chat again. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, Schweitzer on his way to Sioux Falls and then to Colorado College. And, boy, some buzz growing here for the Tigers. A new arena. They got a new look. The new logo did very well. It did okay in the recent NCAA logo tournament. I actually thought it was going to do better than it did. Uh, but, you know, they get some uh, some decent players, and maybe they can turn the fortunes around. It's been a while since Colorado College was a a, a, a notable program for hockey. They're in a tough conference in the NCHC, so uh, lots of uh, high-caliber opposition that they're facing every night. But maybe a new building, and, uh, well, I don't think jerseys necessarily do a whole lot for uh, recruiting top-caliber players, but a new building certainly would. So we'll see if uh, Nate Schweitzer is the first of a few uh, incoming freshmen that uh, that program can build around. Coming up next, uh, broadcaster Corey Graham, who uh, calls the shots literally for the Edmonton Oil Kings Back in the booth for the Oil Kings this year after a season off, after back surgery. Well, the local sports station here, TSN 1260, has been rebroadcasting the WHL final from 2014 featuring the Oil Kings and the Portland Winterhawks, as well as the 2014 Memorial Cup. I got to be a part of those broadcasts, and I got to travel with the team at that time. It was a lot of fun. So we'll talk to Corey, pick his brain about some of his favorite memories from that time. We'll do that in the next segment, but going out to break, uh, this comes from the Memorial Cup in 2014. One of my all-time favorite choreogram uh, calls. Uh, take a listen to this one. Obey Kubel, in on Orman, gets by, saved by Jari, what a stop, center, another chance, Richard, saved by Jari, another chance, didn't make it through, Jari down, covers it up in a huge pile in front. Tristan Jari keeps the Oil King season alive. Hey, it's Tristan Jari from the Edmonton Oil Kings, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. It's criminal, it ought to be 
there's a lot of people with disabilities that can't just go out and find a job. So we set out to create a business to fill those needs, one stick at a time. The Store Next Door gift shop is a Yarmouth-based manufacturer and retail outlet store. So we make great ideas that any of our employees come up with and we reuse and recycle as much as possible. Our most popular item is probably our hockey furniture. We take broken hockey sticks and turn them into different products. We go through a lot of hockey sticks, a lot, a whole lot. Considering that it's only been a year and we're shipping internationally, I think that that's been a huge success. Most people's reactions are, wow, you do this here. We don't accept can't here. Everyone here learns in different ways, but we want to give everybody every opportunity to find exactly what works for them. There's nothing better than when a customer buys something and then one of our employees say, I made that. They have meaningful lives and build things they can be proud of and get a paycheck for it. I'm Amy Acker and we change lives one job at a time. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with... If one of y'all says some silly ass name, this whole class is gonna feel my wrath. Gee Flaming. Son of a bitch! Last segment to go on this week's episode of the Pipeline Show, and uh, we'll get the uh, the showstopper, the headliner today, is uh, the voice of the Edmonton Oil Kings, Corey Graham. Uh, welcome back to the Pipeline Show, Corey. How are you? I'm pretty good, Keith. How are you? I'm, I'm good. It, weird days, though, right? Uh, I mean, so much has changed, and uh, it, it's good that we get to talk a little bit about hockey on the radio again, even though it's six years old hockey on the radio, but uh, the uh, DSN 1260 in Edmonton replaying the 2014 uh, WHL final against uh, with Portland and the Everett Oil uh, the Everett Oil Kings and the Edmonton Oil Kings uh, and the Memorial Cup the uh, two the last two games of the Memorial Cup that year so uh, that's great to hear uh, again but uh, I guess maybe we should start looking back at this past season uh, and uh, what it was like for you uh, back in the booth again uh, and uh, the team was pretty darn good what do you think of this past year Yeah it was definitely fun it was definitely fun to get back to it and uh, kind of seeing all the guys again. And- uh, get involved and, and yeah, I mean, it, uh, the, the team is really good. It was kind of frustrating when they had to shut things down, but you know, that's what happens. But, uh, you know, those clubs, they're built for a little bit of a run here. And, you know, I think maybe arrived a little early last season and they went to the third round of the playoffs. And, you know, this year and maybe next year are kind of their window you look at. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think ultimately you want to have as many swings as, it, as you can. As we've seen in the past, you know, a couple of injuries happen and all of a sudden your team's not the same. So, uh, definitely, um, it's definitely frustrating for you know the guys that they worked all season long to, to not get the chance to finish it off, and, and obviously the twenty year olds around the different leagues. That's it's a tough way to finish off, but uh, you know it is what it is, and I guess we always move on. Uh, I, I've been asking all the guests uh, the last few weeks where they were when they were told that they pull the plug on the season and nothing's happening anymore. Were you around the team uh, at that point, or uh, I, I try to remember where the club was if they were at home or uh, or on the road, and um, but uh, where were you? Uh, I was at home. The, the team is getting ready for a trip to Lethbridge. Uh, I was texting with some of the, the staff and just kind of asking, are you guys really going to get on the bus right now? I mean, it doesn't look like uh, the NHL is shut down already. It looks like things are going to get quiet real quick. And yeah. uh, They're having a practice before they left. And basically, as they came off the ice for practice, I think it was sort of decided that we was going to take a break at that point. And, um, yeah, so I, I was at home, but kind of just it, it felt like it was, you know, it was going to happen. Kind of everything else after the NBA shut down, that you're sort of waiting for the word. Yeah, and uh, now we've got uh, awards coming out and, and things like that. Uh, it feels feels almost kind of uh, anticlimactic a little bit with with no <laughs> end of the regular season and no playoffs and 
but uh, good news for the Oil Kings. Brad Lauer named the WHL uh, Coach of the Year, uh, and I think that's a, a pretty good choice. I, I mean, there were a few teams that were really strong from start to finish, but the Oil Kings were one of them, and uh, his couple of years behind the bench of this club have been pretty strong. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think well deserved for him. It's you know it's funny. I was talking to some people there as well. And like you think back to the, the teams they had back in the day with 50 wins three years in a row. They, you know Derek Laxall never got a nod, but uh, good for Brad Lauer. Absolutely deserving of this, and he's done a great job since coming in here. You know, I think um, changed things last year. I think they needed a fresh voice last year. That they got that from Brad Lauer and Luke Pierce, and I think you know just kind of continue this year. And I mean, you watch the the way this team plays, Guy. They just they're so aggressive. They're so, um, you know, they're so on the puck all over the ice that uh, you can tell the coaching is a, a big part of it. And it seems like sort of the right personality too behind the bench is not, you know, um, overly intense all the time. And, you know, obviously has a pro background as well. So I think, uh, I think it's, you know, obviously a real good nod to him. And, you know, you, you kind of uh, hope things can move forward next year. And, and, you know, he's behind the helm once again. Team made a couple of moves at the, uh, at the Bantam draft as well, David Cope now with the Kelowna Rockets, uh, Jackson Alexander in Victoria, and Kate Oliver uh, uh, comes in and joins the club next year as a, an overage player. Uh, what do you think of all those moves? Uh, obviously, the 20-year-old situation had to get figured out. It's kind of interesting they bring in another 20-year-old in Oliver, but uh, I think he'll, you know, Kurt Hills, the general manager of the Oakland, has done such a nice job of finding these 20-year-olds that fit right into the system, mm-hmm. you know, the last couple of years since he's been in charge. So, um, you know, I just, just to me, I just expect him to come in and be one of the top guys because that's what, uh, you know, the past has shown us the last couple of years under Kurt Hill that he's brought in these 20 year olds that have been a real nice addition and they fit really nice into the group that they have. And, um, you know, you look at some of the talent they still have as 20 year olds, you wonder because, you know, the last three years it hasn't really been returning guys necessarily that have been, um, part of the team moving forward. He's kind of found guys when he's needed to and replaced some parts when he's had to as well. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I wonder, you look at the back end, especially with the, like McLeod and Ryan McLeod, and you can cap two very good WHL defenders, but, um, you know, can you keep both of them on the back end? You have at least one forward up front, your captain's got Atkinson 20, so there's still some decisions to be made, but, you know, moving David Cope on was, was obviously part of that, and, um, you know, uh, some of the other moves are going to have to continue to make. I think this team's going to look a little bit different come come September, October, whenever we start again. Yeah, that's a tough choice to make. Eh? Your captain is Scott Atkinson. He's not necessarily the classic uh, 20 rolled in sense that he's going to be one of the top scorers on your team or anything like that, but he's such a key guy in the dressing room, obviously, as your captain. Yeah. Uh, but then you mentioned Ethan Cap and Wyatt McLeod. I think as 20 year olds, they're going to be just they're massive uh, players. Uh, at the WHL level, and and Kate Oliver coming in, um, so yeah, definitely a, a tough choice there for the organization to make. Um, Corey Graham is my guest; he's the voice of the Edmonton Oil Kings, and uh, we're chatting now about the uh, the replay, uh, the rebroadcast of the 2014 Memorial Cup and uh, WHL final. And as we're speaking right now, it's Thursday. This uh, show will come out on Friday, so we'll be uh, getting set for Game Five uh, of the rebroadcast, but. When you look back at that series now, uh, it, with the uh, you know benefit of six years of hindsight, uh, the way it started, the first couple of games, in my opinion, dominated by Portland, but then three straight by Edmonton. But game three was interesting because the Edmonton was down two nothing, not even four minutes into the game, and then suddenly they took over. What changed uh, through that series, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it just it felt like you're right. I mean, Portland dominated the first two games and. I think your Oakings still had confidence coming back home, but then all of a sudden you're down two nothing. 
uh, early in game three, and it just kind of felt like, oh, here we go again with this Winterhawk team. And, you know, I heard uh, Brian Chusen talking about it before, about the, the decision not to call a timeout when they're down 2 nothing. I, I think at the time, everybody expected their box to have a call a timeout to sort of, you know, get everybody together and try to settle things down, but they didn't do it. And we've talked a lot in the past, you know, Tyler Santos, the backup goaltender, his role on the bench of really being that, that boisterous leader. And mm-hmm. obviously, the biggest, I think, non-overtime goal is probably Luke Berlucci's goal to tie the game. I, I mean, just kind of against the flow of everything, Portland was pushing to, to extend the lead to two. And Bertolucci gets that, that partial breakaway, gets knocked down, gets back up, and fights off Matt Dumplin and scores. And it felt like everything sort of swung at that moment. Uh, huge, uh, huge game three victory. And really seemed to get the team going again. And game four, I thought, was a pretty dominating performance by the Oil Kings. A 2 nothing shutout, but they badly outshot yeah. Portland in that one. Uh, I think Portland only had 13 shots in the final two periods uh, of that game. Had 13 in the first period. Uh, but seemed like everything was going Edmonton's way off to Portland, then you get the Game 5 victory in Portland. You're coming home. Boy, it almost looked, felt like a fait accompli. They're going to win. They got Portland on the ropes, coming back home to a raucous Rexall place at the time. Uh, and then uh, Game 6 was an interesting one. <laughs> you have to say the least. You're right. It felt like, you know, the uh, Sunday night coronation was going to happen. It was just sort of the countdown to when the trophy would get handed out. And, you know, they get up two goals early in the hockey game. They won a three-goal lead heading to the third period, and it's you're just like, okay, hey, let's just count down the minutes. But again, give Portland credit. They didn't give up. They found ways. They, you know, they scored some goals that maybe weren't necessarily, you know, the classic Winter Hawk goals where they're highly realized. They had some, you know, some banks in off, off players and stuff like that. They put pucks on net and they, they got to Edmonton. They, you know, Edmonton, according to Henrik Samuelson, changed their forecheck after 40 minutes, started back things off, and that absolutely killed them. Um, then, you know, Samuelson said after that game that they weren't going to do that again in game seven, and they didn't, obviously, but. At Game Six, is probably one of the most frustrating days of Rexall. You knew every day was ready for a party. Uh, the last thing you wanted to do was hop back on that plane and go down to Portland for a game the next day. And I mean, the, the WHL history of no teams won a road Game Seven in the championship hanging over you and all that stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. I guess looking back on it now, you probably wouldn't take it any other way because that Game Seven was such a memorable night, and I mean, obviously kind of built from there. In Game 7, well, we go to that. I mean, it was 4-1 going into the third period in that game uh, with the Oil Kings up and, again, dominating pretty much from the, those first two periods. I thought might have been Edmonton's best couple of periods uh, through that series. Really had Portland yeah. seeming like frustrated. Portland couldn't really mount much against the Oil Kings. Through that entire third period, even though Portland scored uh, at, at one point, I, I never felt like it was going to slip away. I never felt panicked in that third period for the Oil Kings. They seemed like they really had that game in hand uh, fairly early on. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You're right, I agree with you. But, I mean, it's one nothing Portland early again. Like, under five minutes in, Bjorkstrand scores that goal off the side wall. And um, Edmonton has a goal disallowed on a power play. And uh, then all of a sudden, that, that second period, they scored four times in the second. And it's just, like, complete domination. They had a shorthanded goal in there with, with Lazar and... Um, you're right, the third period, yeah, Portland gets one late, and you have that flurry near the end when they're still down by two, and <laughs> Charlie goes to the empty net, we almost all have heart attacks. Yeah. Uh, kind of went, it kind of went from there. You're, you're right, it kind of felt like that, that the Oil Kings were just going to lock that game down. Once they got up after 40 minutes, you know, I'm pretty sure it was pretty easy to look back the night before and see how it all came apart that uh, wasn't going to happen. And, you know, despite the late power play goal for the Hawks, it was, uh, it was the Oil Kings night, and, uh, <laughs> 
that was uh, yeah, quite a quite a memorable evening. Now, what fans don't get to see the stuff that happens on the road and on the bus and things like that, and and I never get to see it except for that series. I did actually get some of the behind the scenes stuff because I was able to travel with the team for the first time ever. Going from uh, after Game Six, going to the airport as the team was flying out because Game Seven was the very next day. Uh, Captain Griffin Reinhardt stood up. Do you remember what he said uh, to the guys? To, and and it's, you know, right now I think these days Griffin Reinhardt is kind of looked at as kind of a you know a NHL failed pick or whatever. But at the WHL level, this guy was a he was a beast. He was a dominant player, and he had awesome leadership uh, capability and, yeah. and, and qualities. Remember what he said? Uh, I mean, not exactly word for word, but I, you know, you kind of paraphrase it a little bit, obviously, and, and just basically told everybody to keep their chins up getting off the bus and, and not to have any bad body language because they lost that game and, um, just to maintain that professional, oh, <laughs> excuse me, maintain that professional outlook that we've seen from, from his leadership kind of on down. He was never the most boisterous guy, especially in the dressing room from what I'm told, but he wasn't a guy that necessarily always stood up and had the speeches, but on that bus, he just, he kind of calmed everything down, I thought. And then, I mean, you remember going to that airport where there's there's the two rooms, the two holding rooms, really, for the chartered planes. And for some reason, Edmonton got to the airport first, and they were seated in the first room. Yeah. And then Portland got second, and they were in the back room. So they had to walk through, like, all, you know, what are, what are we, 30, 40 people with bags and stuff sitting there waiting to get on the plane. And all dejected, obviously. And then the Winterhawks had to walk through, right through the Oaking players, which I thought was crazy. And they were hooting and hollering as soon as they closed the door behind them. And I remember looking up at Mitch Moraz and just the look on his face and go, yep, you boys enjoy that one because you're not going to enjoy tomorrow night. It just felt like almost that, that scene of events where it's like, hey, they, they're celebrating like they just won. Let them enjoy it because they're not going to have it tomorrow. It's just kind of gave that more fuel to a fire kind of um, bulletin board material you always talk about. Well, absolutely. And I, I... It felt to me like a crushing defeat in Game Six for the Oil Kings, and yeah. for me, it was like I don't know how this team is coming back after that, after blowing a five-two lead going into the third period. Then we get up in Portland the next day, getting ready for Game Seven. We're chatting with guys. I think Kurt Lazar was playing basketball in front of the, uh, like shooting hoops in front of the hotel or something. It just seemed like it was another day for them that they were able to water off the Ducks' back, sort of thing, shake it off so quickly. And that to me was pretty impressive. It was, it was, uh, how quickly they were able to put the, uh, the devastating loss from the night before in the, the rear view mirror and get ready for game seven. I was really impressed by that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's the thing. Cause you know, everybody that, that watches the game talks about momentum between games and series like that. Until you're in it, you don't realize how quickly those games can go away. You know, how it doesn't kind of transfer game to game. And, and you're right, just their whole attitude. And I'm not sure that you and me were quite on the same schedule in that morning <laughs> as of yet to be, uh, to be having all that confidence, but just watching how relaxed and calm everybody was. It's just, it kind of just gave you that sense. And that, yeah, you know, I remember going to the rink and doing the pregame interviews and it just, you know, I, I think I, I think it was Steve Hamilton in game seven because I, I think, that's how, that's how it worked out. And just his confidence about the game. And even to say in the end, you know, you know, good luck tonight. He's like, we don't need luck. We're, we're fine. You just watch. This will be fine. Mm-hmm. But just the confidence with that group was, it was amazing considering what they've been through to get there. And then obviously what happened the night before. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, turn around and that game seven performance. Unbelievable. I, I think I was the only guy that was happy to be going back to Portland for game seven because I had lo- left my phone in, in Portland uh, after game five. And it was going to cost me, uh, I don't know, a hundred bucks or something to ship it up. So, uh, I was okay with going back to uh, to Portland for Game 7, but uh, I don't think anybody else was excited after the Game 6 loss. Um, 
the uh, the trip to uh, London for the Memorial Cup after winning the WHL championship. Uh, and, and we've talked about it uh, several times on and off the record, just the difference between uh, winning a WHL championship when you have such an arch rivalry against the Portland Winterhawks and then uh, having to pick up and go to uh, London to play the London Knights, the Gulf Storm, and the Valdor Forer, who you don't know at all. A different experience uh, in terms of intensity, would you say? Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? You think of just how emotional those Portland series were, especially that last one. I mean, let's think back to it and say, oh, man, are we involved in these games? Because it's just, you're in the middle of the crowd. Everybody's, it's us versus them, it feels like, even though you're, you know, you're broadcasting. It's how it feels. Yeah. Um, you're getting cheered by all the fans around you. And, you know, and just the way that the, the Winterhawks dominated, just kind of, man, it was frustrating. Um, and then you go to the Memorial Cup and you think, okay, well, these are bigger games. And you, just don't, you didn't have that connection. Everything's, much more, um, much more pro, I guess, kind of the separation. Uh, you know, the teams kind of do their own thing and all the media is separated a little bit more. And, um, you, you don't know the other team. So most of your time there, you're kind of, you're prepping and getting set to, to, you know, to do these games against teams you have know nothing about really in a short period of time. You got to figure it out. So, uh, you're obviously a little bit more busy. There's, there's also tons of other stuff going on in the, the whole tournament. So you're right. I think it, um, we've talked about it a lot. It just doesn't feel the same sort of level of, intensity but that being said the games are i mean arguably bigger i mean it is the memorial cup but it's almost a bonus at the end of your playoffs yeah that's that's the way i've described it to people i i think the memorial cup is kind of like dessert after a great meal not everybody likes dessert but uh you know it's never going to replace the meal uh but uh it's it's the uh it's the cake afterwards and it hey i've never turned down a cake so uh, I'll take it for sure. Uh, when you look back at those games, uh, anything in particular stand out about any of the uh, the individual matchups against uh, those teams? Uh, I think, you know, you talked a lot about Griffin Reinhardt earlier and just the way he handled, like, Anthony Mantha in those two long games and the way he, I mean, the way the Oak Kings really shut down that high-powered London team who had a ton of names on it but just weren't very good. Yeah. Um, you know, at, at home, they, they lost all three games and, you know, Max Domi was their, their hero at the time and really didn't look interested in those games and, um, from all Kings' perspective, just kind of the way the team, you know, they, they lost the first game to Guelph. Uh, they, they didn't phase them. You know, they got right back to it. They lost that heartbreaker in double overtime to Valdor and had to play them two days later, three days later in the semifinal and, and gave up the late goal in regulation to go back to overtime. It's just, it, it's just like, how can this happen again? And just the way they persevered and found a way. And I mean, <laughs> doing that game, that triple overtime game, man, that was incredible. <laughs> I kind of look back and think of how we uh, we got through that one, just uh, how long it was. And the washroom lines in the butt garden were awful. <laughs> and trying to run around to get things done and try to find intermission people to fill. And yeah, uh, you know, you're doing it. It was it was uh, it was a long night, but obviously it ended the way you wanted to end. And then you know, just watching the players in the day off between because they had to get back and play on the Sunday and doing everything they can to to refuel and to rehydrate and and try to save some energy. It was like a it was almost like a hospital room downstairs in the hotel. Just kind of guys getting treatment all day and trying to be ready for Sunday. Yeah, huge effort by the off-ice uh, staff. Uh, Brian Cheeseman leading the way there for the Oil Kings to get ready for uh, the uh, the final game against Guelph. And, and again, much like Game 7 of the, uh, the the series against Portland, I thought Edmonton dominated that game. And, and Guelph had gone into it. I think they were unbeaten, and they were the, the favorite. Yep. Uh, they almost seemed overconfident uh, in, in classic fashion, and I thought the Oil Kings really took it to them for the most part. Yeah, and it goes again. Like Edmonton gave up a goal in a minute in. Dyson Ayo turns that puck over, and it's one nothing Guelph, and it's, 
probably the best thing that could have happened because I think you're right. I think Guelph kind of got that, oh, we kicked these guys before. We're going to beat them again. We are already up one nothing. So everything's like, they didn't panic. Like, oh, yeah, we've been here. You know, we're used to this being down. We'll just battle back. And, you know, again, we talked about Luke Bertolucci and, and the Memorial Cup. It's Tyler Robertson who scores mm-hmm. on his first shift of the game. I think it was in the second period as well. And, uh, you know, just small things like that stand out. You know, uh, Henrik Sanderson was a beast that night. He gave five points, but um, we just kind of look at the some of the goals that came from different places in that tournament. And obviously that Robertson goal is a huge one. And, you know, Edmonton, like, like you said, I think once they kind of grabbed the lead, they, they really sort of put their foot down and, and kind of dominated the rest of the hockey game. Yeah, no question. Eddie Kolda, the uh, MVP of the Memorial Cup that year. Who was the, in the WHL playoffs that year? Was it was it Jari? Uh, it was either Jari or Reinhardt. I think it might have been Griffin Reinhardt. Okay. I was just looking back through the uh, the, the game, uh, game by game, and I think Jari had – Three or four game stars, and I think I think that was also the time when he was in in Portland after the game uh, where the uh, he was named game star, and he, he got a big round of applause or something, and he gave his stick to the to the little girl or something like that 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 came out and gave him the the prize for the game star. Yeah, normally they have um, and they do that in Portland when they have the game stars close with fans, and I, I mean you know how I feel about stars they're they're picked for the home crowd usually, but I think. Gosh, was it was it game five? It yeah. Must have been game five. It was one game they won in Portland. I think so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I can't remember exactly when it was, but that story, you know, obviously huge. Jari was the first star of the game, and posed with the little girl, gave her a stick, and I remember that family wrote a real nice note to the Old Kings after that, just about how classy Tristan Jari was. And yeah. That's no surprise the way you know get to know that guy, just how classy he is. So. Uh, it was a cool little side note for sure. Yeah, and I remember the little girl's mom was actually Tommy Hawk, the uh, the person inside the mascot the suit. Oh yeah, so that's what I remember. She had e- right, yeah. emailed me about that. Yeah, fantastic. All right, well, uh, I guess uh, when you look back at the entire uh, that season uh, and some of the players who have gone on to have success uh, at the professional level and some guys in the NHL now, uh, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that some of those guys have moved on. But for me, I'm still a little bit surprised there aren't more success stories from that run for the Oil Kings. It, uh, when you look back at that team, those you know those three teams in 12, uh, 13, and, and 2014, um, are you a little bit surprised that there aren't more guys in the NHL? Yeah, I think absolutely. And even you know guys that uh, are in the NHL that, that maybe don't have the careers you might have thought they would have at that time. And, and I, it just, I mean, it goes to show how close it is to making it, not making it. And how many good players there are in, in the junior ranks that just, Never take that next step. And yeah. when we talked about Griffin Reinhardt, I, I thought for sure he was a lock. And, uh, you know, I remember Derek Van Deest always comparing him to Cam Barker and said, no, 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 I saw this guy at Metis Nat. He's the same player. He was not going to work out. And you know, it looks at this point now that, that maybe Van Deest was right. You know, Reinhardt's obviously not in the NHL anymore. And I don't know, you know, just what happens to the guys and how close it is to, to making it to Cotton Knot. And, you know, look at that Portland team as well. It's some amazing names. And, Obviously, a few of them have had great NHL careers, and some of them are hanging around the um, the sides of the game a little bit. But um, yeah, I think from both those teams, I, I, I'm shocked there's not more high-level NHL players. Yeah, well, we'll see this new gra- crop of players uh, in Edmonton and Portland. Heck, we could have seen an Edmonton-Portland uh, meeting again this year in 2020 uh, had things uh, uh, been able to play out to the full extent. But uh, some pretty good teams uh, and good players on those teams again. Who knows? Maybe uh, it, this would have been the start of another two or three years in a row uh, of domination for these clubs. Such a great rivalry, though, for especially when you think that these teams only see each other once a year. 
Um, I, that rivalry, I mean, you, you could almost make an argument that it's Edmonton's biggest rivalry, and it's a team they only play once a year. Yeah, I think so. I think for people that have been around for a while, but I, I think, because you said, they only play once a year, and, and you only see it in a whole once every two years, that I don't know if the newer generation sort of has that same kind of tie to it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, you think in those three years, they played 20 times in the final. Each team won 10 games out of the 20. Like, it just, they were so evenly matched, and wow. there's so much stuff going on on the ice. Like, hey, I would be an official during those games and try to figure out what to call and what not to call because guys are spearing each other all over the place. And, you know, it's just, it was, like I talked to Al Mitchell about it, uh, low tide on TSN Tel 60 about how, you know, it wasn't the eighties and early nineties, but it kind of felt like it a little bit the way <laughs> how much stuff was going on and how much general hatred was on the ice, even though these guys are best to find block with it. Ah, uh, that's funny. Uh, and hard job for the officials for sure, especially when the uh, broadcasters are all over them. And for that, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got to hold them accountable, right? That's our, is that part of our job? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. All right. Well, Corey, listen, I re- uh, appreciated uh, reliving the, all of this and, uh, and discussing uh, the, the, the uh, 2014 uh, WHL final and the Memorial Cup. Those broadcast six o'clock every night on TSN 1260 the rest of this week and next week as well. Yeah, all right. We appreciate you having me on again. It's always fun. Great stuff. Uh, Corey, we'll talk again uh, soon. Have a good summer. All right, man. You too. It's Corey Graham, uh, voice of the Edmonton Oil Kings, one of the two voices of the Oil Kings. Andrew Peard uh, doing uh, road games, and uh, every once in a while I get to do color still, but uh, usually on the road, only in red there. Been a lot of fun, though, to listen to the uh, rebroadcast of the 2014 Memorial Cups thus far. Game 5 goes tonight. Huge game uh, by Tristan Jari. And eventually, Griffin Reinhardt is named the MVP of the WHL playoffs that year. I look back at the the game reports from those uh, the, the the seven games in that uh, series against Portland. I think Jari's a star in four of them. Looking back now, I don't know. I think maybe Jari could have been named the MVP uh, for the Oil Kings uh, during the playoffs that year. Not that Reinhardt was a bad choice as a junior; he was a dominant player in the Western Hockey League for sure. All right, that wraps up uh, this week's episode of the Pipeline Show. Thanks to all three guests that you heard, Adam Wooden, as well as uh, Nate Schweitzer and uh, Corey Graham. Next week on the show, don't have uh, specific guests lined up just yet, but I hope to have more 2020 draft uh, spotlight segments. Uh, have a number of um, invites out uh, to players, a handful of them uh, from Europe. been trying to get Alexi Lafreniere on the show as well for the last uh, well two, three months. Uh, doesn't look like that's going to happen, though. But as always, if there are requests that you would uh, of a player or a coach or a scout or something like that, anybody, a media person that you would like me to get on the show, uh, you can drop me a line. Uh, send me a note on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. You can always email me, Guy at thepipelineshow.com as well. But this show is over, so I'm going to tap into an uh, open road American brown ale from Troubled Monk. Don't forget... Get your orders in by 1 p.m. You get same-day free delivery if your order is 50 bucks or more. Calgary, Red Deer, and Edmonton, including St. Albert and Sherwood Park from Troubled Monk. Go to troubledmonk.com. Till next week, everybody, my name is Keith Flaming. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next week. See ya.